All right, we're going to be in Luke chapter 15. Um, there's not going to be a whole lot of time this morning for a, a distracting introduction. We're going to get right into the text. Um, so let's just uh, let's go ahead and open with a prayer, and we'll get right into to Luke chapter 15. Uh, my Father, I just want to um, just stop and acknowledge you, uh, that we collectively as your family and your body um, are sitting at your feet this morning. We want to sit at the feet of your word and encourage us through this chapter um, Rebuke us if you need to through this chapter. Uh, Speak to us. And Father, I I just pray that your word would live within us. Uh, God, that we will not become detached from a relationship with you and a respect for the value that your word holds, that every day holds, that every breath holds, and teach us to value one another. Uh, It's in Christ we pray. Amen. Uh, This is Luke 15. Uh, The opening two verses say this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear him. Uh, But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Uh, That that opening word where it says they muttered, it's it's the Greek equivalent to the word used in the Old Testament for what the children of Israel were doing, murmuring against Moses. This this complaining under your breath. This is this is the kind of Messiah that has come. He's welcoming sinners and eating with them. Now this has been uh, a great theme through the book of Luke so far. In fact, possibly the central theme of the book of Luke has been this Christ that comes. And he associates with sinners. And there is no gratitude in the hearts of the leaders of Israel through the book. Someone is healed over and over again. In every chapter, somebody's healed. And instead of celebrating the healing, they instead are consumed with their philosophical interpretations of the law. There, there were six, there were somewhere in the neighborhood of 613 laws in Torah, and, and they, they had built their own laws in the Talmud upon each one of these countless laws that they observed. One thing I want you to know about them and about us is that many of their own laws that they had created made sense. Um, they were all rooted somewhere in a scripture. Have you ever caught yourself or maybe someone else going so far off in their own philosophies that are rooted in a scripture, that all of a sudden they're using a scripture to say something that quite clearly is not what that scripture was intended to say. That happens all the time, and I'm not going to point fingers at anyone but myself. That has happened all the time in my own walk, where my own philosophies have started to create laws out of scripture that it should be clear those scriptures were never intended to communicate. To sit down and just to be honest with God's word and not to forget that, right? This is the, the section we're in. Luke 14, we talked about the banquet. And those invited rejected the invitation, so the people of the street were brought in. In this chapter, chapter 15, an older brother loses gratitude and a celebration is thrown instead for a young brother um, and his return. In the following chapter, the rich man is going to, in chapter 16, the rich man is going to live in, in, in luxury while Lazarus just eats the scraps that fall from the table like a dog. But it's reversed again in chapter 16. This is the central theme of the book of Luke, the kind of shepherd that Christ came to be and the kind of shepherd that he was. 
And that's how he opens um, this chapter. We're going to talk about this lost sheep, but I'm going to I'm going to hopefully give you a different perspective, a different paradigm about what this sheep really represented. It's important to read the Gospels. Super important to read the Gospels in light of the Old Testament prophets. I think we miss a lot because we're not familiar enough with the Old Testament prophets and a lot of what Christ is referring to, particularly when he talks about sheep. Whether you're in John 15 and he's talking about the good shepherd, you're here when he's talking about the one who would go and search for the lost sheep, or when he says in Matthew 25 that I will come and separate the sheep from the goats. All of these are references to Ezekiel 34. And without really understanding Ezekiel 34, we might get the wrong message when we come into some of this. This is Ezekiel 34, and I'm going to read this before I get into into Luke. Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth. No one searched or looked for them. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. Ezekiel 34 talks about the coming Messiah, the coming shepherd. Not simply as one. If you were to think of Old Testament prophecy, you would say the sacrificial lamb, the one who would come to be the Messiah, the one who would come and save his people. But so many prophecies deal with the coming Messiah as one who would come in judgment. One who would come and judge Israel's leaders and and protect his people from being led astray by these shepherds who, as Jim talked about in class this morning, were serving themselves at the cost of the sheep. And so he comes and he says, I'm going to separate those rams, those that are budding and those that are muddying up the waters and those that are hurting my sheep. I'm going to separate them from my sheep and there will be one shepherd. And that's the prophecy of Ezekiel 34. And now he's coming and he's basically saying, I'm here. I'm the shepherd. And I am going to search after those sheep that you won't search after. And he says this. Jesus told him this parable, verse 3. Suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. What a profound thing he just said. Over one sinner, I used to, I'm going to make fun of myself a lot in this sermon this morning, okay? I I used to really get annoyed when there was a baptism or something, and someone would inevitably say, oh, all the heavens, the angels in heaven are rejoicing. And I'd hear somebody say that, I would think, that's cute. That's so silly. And then I, I, I don't know how I missed it, but then I get over here to Luke 15, I'm like, wait, Jesus actually says that here, that the angels in heaven are rejoicing, not, not over something, no, we're not talking about nations being brought down or nations brought to repentance. How about this? The angels in heaven rejoicing over one, one person brought to repentance, one person brought back, and there is celebration in heaven. 
And what you're going to see throughout this chapter is the things that man celebrates, God is frustrated with. And the things that God celebrates, man is frustrated with. We don't share the same values. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. I want to share this prayer. This is an actual first century prayer from a rabbi. Um, it's very similar to other verses in the, in the New Testament. But how about this prayer? This, this kind of uh, reflects the attitude that the uh, religious elites had. I give thanks to you, my Lord and my God, that you have placed my lot among those who sit in the study hall and that you have not given me my portion among those who sit idly on street corners. I rise early and they rise early. I rise early to pursue matters of Torah and they rise early to pursue frivolous matters. I toil and they toil. I toil and receive a reward and they toil and do not receive a reward. I run and they run. I run to life of the world to come and they run to the pit of destruction. Now, there's so much of that that half of you are thinking, man, that sounds sick. Who prays a prayer like that? The other half of you are thinking, sounds a lot like Proverbs, Jeff. It doesn't sound too off, you know, too off here. Um, and, and the truth is, there, there's some beauty in those words. There's some truth in those words. What's missing in those words? This person is celebrating. That person's dem- dem- demise and their own victory. Did you know that there was a song back in the Puritan days that people used to sing in church? We took this one out of our hymnals. It's never going back in. But it, there was a song that said, The bells of hell are ring ting ting a ling for you, but not for me. <laughs> the angels in heaven are sing, sing, sing a ling for me eternally. Now, outside of the ling, ling, ling part, there were other reasons that had to be taken out of the hymnal, right? Celebrating, um, Jesus is coming soon. That song bothers me too for a lot of doctrinal reasons, but also it sounds like it's celebrating, man, all these people are going to beat their doom, but not me. And it's this whole idea that you're detaching yourself, celebrating you and what God is doing in you, and you are gradually losing love for the lost, Love for, we're going to get to the end of this chapter, your brother, right? And so this, this theme through Luke shows that they have a, they are consumed with a detached philosophical interpretation of the law and they're losing love uh, for their brothers. He's going to go on and he's going to talk about this lost coin. This is the basic breakdown of the chapter. Just like chapter 14 is easy to remember, that's the banquet chapter. And he just keeps focusing on the banquet from different aspects. This is the lost chapter of Luke. Um, Chapter 16, by the way, is going to be the difficult chapter of Luke. It's a very, very difficult chapter. But um, here we go, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. In the first two accounts... It's one of a hundred, and this one it's going to be one of ten. Now, that's important. There's a plurality in all of these. He could have just said he lost the sheep. He could have just said they lost their coin. He could have just said he lost his son. But in each instance, there's a plurality, and there's a purpose to that. Really, one of a hundred, it's easy to look at it and say, you know what, inconsequential. Let it go. One of ten. Now, I know that you've probably, some of you read commentaries that says, well, this was a wedding band of a, of a girl, and she had her ten coins, and so it was sacred. The truth is, those wedding bands are from the 19th century, possibly 18th century, not necessarily first century. 
It's probably just 10 coins. And she loses one, and you might say inconsequential. It's a drachma, day's wage. She's probably spending more on the party and more giving her day to looking for this coin than the coin was worth. But the point of these passages is that God values what we don't always value. God sees value in those things that we sometimes devalue. In each instance, how about this? She searches until she finds it. With the man with the lost sheep, he searches until he finds it. I will not give up. Now, how about this? Because this message is going to be for all kinds of of us this morning, because I don't know where you're at. But say you are in the position of the lost. And someone in here, no doubt, would say, I am that person right now. I am the lost. God, come find me. How about this for an encouraging thought? If I am somebody who's lost, God is searching desperately for me, and he will not give up. Wow! This idea that I will not give up on you, I am after you, I am calling for you, I'm willing to leave the 99, I'm going to do whatever it takes to bring you home, I'm desperately searching for you. And then, and this is the point of the chapter, The call to celebration. Now I want you to know that I believe the point of this entire chapter is taking us to the older brother. I think the older brother is the point. And I, because you have to remember who he's addressing and why he's addressing them. He's addressing the Pharisees who are not celebrating the repentance and return of the sinners. And so he's building us up to that. And he says this, there is a call for celebration. Once I find it, I'm going to get my neighbors. I'm going to throw a feast. And we are going to celebrate my sheep. We're going to celebrate this coin. It says this. I'm just going to read through the parable of the lost coin. Verse 8. Suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, She calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And and, in both of these cases, he brings us to the celebration of heaven. What really brings God worship. And and there's been a lot of talk about, you know, what's it going to be like to be in heaven? I am not somebody, and this is a confession. I'm going to make some of my close friends upset when I say this. Singing is not my thing. It never has been. And you're going to see me walking up and down the hall singing all the time. But the truth is, singing is one of my least favorite things to do in a worship service. As beautiful as it sounds, I'm not the artistic kind of person. It's not me so much. You know, but when I come, I love to have it, and I love it that we do it. But sometimes I have to wonder this. I've grown up in churches where we've thought and we've emphasized music so much that we forget one thing. When God says, speak to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord, Ephesians 5.19, Colossians 3.16, those verses do not mean God is commanding us to sing on Sunday mornings. I hope that's clear. Those verses are telling us how to relate to one another with the Word of God inundating our conversations and our thoughts and our minds. It's not talking about what we're doing as we face a wall. It's talking about what we do when we face one another. 
And it's easy to, to distract ourselves and say, this is worship. Our sacrifices, our bulls, our goats, our offerings, our songs. And God throughout the Old Testament, now also in the New, is going to say this. What really brings me honor, what really brings me worship, is the one another aspect of Colossians 3.16 in Ephesians 5.19. It's how you are relating with one another. This is what brings me worship. It's when I see my boys loving each other, embracing each other. This is what brings worship to God. And that brings us to the parable of the lost son, beginning in verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. I love this, the audacity of this boy. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him, ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, Bring the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. And they began to celebrate. Um, The joy that's in this chapter the joy that is in this father right now. God wants us, wants us to feel this, but I think, I, I think you're like me. And with this coming dialogue with the older brother, I have identified so much with this older brother, and unfortunately, I see his point. This is what he says. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, not in the party. He's missing the party. I think that's important. When he came near to the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother's come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry, refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you. And never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill a fattened calf for him. 
My son, the father said, you're always with me. And everything I have is yours. Now, this is the older brother. What you can't forget in this story is he's the one that inherits all of this. He's the older brother. He's living the life of a king. A rich father, he has it all and he hasn't left. And now he's angry. But we had to celebrate and be glad, the father says, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. Um, I, I want to say some things about my own walk. I'm not saying a lot of this. I'm not bragging on myself as a kid. I'm, it's, this is to my shame. Um, Tamara knew me when I was a, a little kid. Uh, my parents obviously did. But when I, came, when I came to Christ in high school, I was extremely passionate. I woke up every single morning. I wrote out a verse from the Bible on a piece of paper, and I taped it up on my wall. Every single morning until my entire bedroom was wallpapered with scriptures. I think hundreds. All around my bedroom walls and late at night I would look at them and I would pray. Early in the morning I would get up and pray. I went door knocking in my neighborhood, knocked on every single door in there with World Bible School material. I was showing Jewel Miller film strips, had every one of them memorized. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. I was doing all of that stuff when I was a teenager. I memorized the Sermon on the Mount, memorized most of the book of Hebrews later. I I prided myself. And the reason why was because I wanted to know more, to do better, to win debates, to win discussions, because I felt like somewhere back in my heart, that would bring me closer to God. And so I devoted myself from a very young age Fasting secretly, giving secretly, doing everything I could so that I could be close to my father. And, and, and then I met a mentor who radically affected my life. And he was an amazing speaker and he spoke at conferences and lectures everywhere. He had most of the New Testament memorized. He had radio programs and everything else, and he used to teach us. He'd say, say listen, you've got, to, you've got to study, and you need to prepare this much in advance when you're going to do a class, you're going to do a talk. And we talked about all this preparation. And I asked him one time, and I said, man, if you're doing all of this, you teach five times a week, you do three sermons, you have a radio show, how do you prep? And he said, the wisest advice anyone's ever given me, really. He said, Jeff, there comes a time where you don't need to study the Word. You need to learn to live in it. You need to make it your home. And that advice has stuck with me all my life. That man was living in an affair the entire time he spoke with me and the entire time he talked to me. That man devastated me. And I was angry. Mad. And it was just one of those things where I'm like, I have lived close to God's throne. I'm doing everything I can right. And this man that I respected as a teacher completely shattered my heart and let me down. And it happened over and over and over again with mentors in my life. I saw sin. Then I was asked to speak at an event with this man. And I was not given the keynote address. That man was given the keynote. And I said, that man lived his life in an affair and in sin and sickness. 
And he broke my heart. And now I'm going to come up here and you see the pride in me, you know. And now I'm not, and now I have to sit here and watch him take keynote. That man came back to Christ. And I didn't celebrate. I was angry. And I thought to myself, man, I know how to get keynotes. I know how to really get good, important positions in the church. Go give your life to sin and come back. They'll invite you everywhere. And you can see the older brother, can't you? Just, man, if this is what it takes to be close, if this is what it takes to be exalted, if this is what it takes for the fattened calf, let me give my life to sin. Let me do that. Because the whole problem is this. I was inundated with a mentality. And it happened in my schooling. It happened in my own mind that we were elevating ourselves. We were inundated with the idea that we were the cream of the crop, the finest. Plaques, awards, recognitions, and trophies were exchanged regularly. Evangelism and growth often pointed to our own success and spiritual acumen. We were professionals. And in doing so, we lost gratitude. We lost humility. We lost what it was to love our brothers. And if I really loved my brother that was coming home, I would have celebrated his return. So much of the Old Testament and the New Testament is dedicated to the idea of changing our values. Looking at what God values and trying to align our thinking with His. There's a, there's a verse that um, is really important here. It's in Isaiah 55. It's a verse that's on, you know, keychains and, and bookmarks. Um, it was one of the verses I had on my wall when I was a kid. It says this, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts, uh, my Ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And we looked at that and we said, what a beautiful verse. God, thank you. And then I read Isaiah. And I found out that that's not what that verse's angle is at all. It says this, let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord And he'll have mercy on him and to our God, for he will freely pardon for my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts. He's not asking us to praise him because his thoughts are higher than ours. He's asking us to reject our thinking and to start conforming our thoughts to his thoughts. To start celebrating the things he celebrates and to reject our own things and the things we celebrate. In the very next chapter, next week we'll be there, Luke 16, God says this, what is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. The things that we value, often God detests and the things that God values, often we detest. And that seems to be the point of this chapter with this older brother. Um, I just want you to pray with me for a minute about this thought. Um, Ephesians 5.10 says it beautifully. Try to find out those things that please the Lord. 
Now, Colossians 3.17, Colossians 3.23 are verses that say, whatever you do, in word, deed, everything that you do, do for the glory of God. That's a passage that we've often taken to say, so whatever you do in life, do it for God's glory. If you make a touchdown, point to the sky. You know, kind of a mentality. But that verse isn't saying that. It's saying change the things that you're doing in life so that they do glorify God. It's not saying do whatever you want to do. In other words, I can't, and, and again, I'm, forgive me because I'm going to share with you my own thoughts on things and I'm wrong a lot, so bear with me here. But dress has been one of those, one of those issues. Then in the past we've said it's important to dress up and dress nicely for God's glory. The problem is, Scripture doesn't tell us that that glorifies God. You can't do whatever you want to do and say, I'm doing it for God's glory. The point is, you need to search and find out what are those things that glorify God. Oh, my clothing doesn't in Scripture. It's my heart and my attitude and my mind. This glorifies God. Try to find out those things that glorify God. What if, just imagine... If somehow we saw people through the eyes of God, if I really saw the lost and I really saw you through the eyes of God, how much love there would be, how much compassion, how much prayer. What if every breath I breathed, I understood and valued for what it actually is. Every day that I live, what if I lived because I understood the value that that day held? The brother, this older brother, grew up in luxury. I'm an only child, believe me, I understand. I was spoiled, I think. My parents were amazing parents. But I had a lot. I stayed at home. I mean, not really. I left the country. But I, I, as far as God was concerned, I stayed home. I'm not the brother that has some story to you about my horrible life of sin and how I came back. I am the brother that has a story to you about how my heart became arrogant and ungrateful and forgetting what God is providing for me every single day I've lived in his home all that he has is mine. Do you know Paul said that exact same thing? I'll close with this verse. Paul said the same thing to the Corinthians. A people who were becoming arrogant. The Corinthians were becoming jealous of one another, wanting to use their gifts to exalt themselves. And Paul says this, no more boasting about men. This is chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. All things are yours. Wow, that sounds just like this parable. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos, Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are in Christ. And you hear that same mentality. Look at yourself. Look at what God has given you. Look what he's done for you. Celebrate the return of the lost with the Father. Um, I want to close with a prayer. And I want to pray for you. Uh, I love this story, even though I, the angle of this chapter, I believe, is focusing on this older brother and I, that I identify so much with. 
you might identify more with that lost person in the story and need to hear that you have a father that is searching desperately for you, that will not give up, that will carry you on his shoulders, and that will run to you when you come back home. That kind of compassion. Um, But I want to lift our hearts up before God and pray that he would robe us with a spirit of compassion towards one another. That we won't do what the Pharisees in his time had done and the teachers of the law and become so consumed with being right and so consumed with wanting to be close to God through our own walk in the word that we forgot to love one another the most basic fundamental commandment we're given, right? Uh, Father, I just... I want to lift up the hearts that are in this room, in this body. I pray, God, that you would cause growth in your kingdom and in your people. That you would clear our, our minds and our, our hearts of arrogance. And that, Father, that we would look at people, the worst of sinners. And, and that we would see them not through the eyes of a judgmental, jealous brother, but would see them as our brother, And that we would fill us with the same compassion that the Father has in the story. Um, I pray, God, that if there's someone in this room that needs to forgive, that you would would fill us with a spirit of forgiveness. And maybe more importantly, um, those that struggle with forgiving themselves and um, maybe refuse to come home because we're so ashamed and so embarrassed of what we've done. I pray, God, that you'd remind us that we are not um, criminals before a distant judge, but we are sons before an extravagant father. I love you so much for your love for your children, and I pray, God, that this world will know we are yours because of our love for one another. It's in the name of Christ. Amen. Let's stand and worship our God.